0: When Israel asked Samuel to name them a king, Saul seemed to be the perfect answer to their petition. Head and shoulders taller than anyone else in Israel, physically strong and mighty in battle, and initially at least, humble and spiritually minded, Saul seemed to have everything anyone could want in a leader. However, within a brief span of two years, Saul had left behind Jehovah. Why did the Lord choose David to supplant him? The answer is in the title of our lesson for this week. Number 22, the Lord looketh on the heart. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to Lesson 22, The Lord Looketh on the Heart. This is your Old Testament Sunday School Preparation Gospel Doctrine. And we would like to invite anyone who has questions for the program to email me. I'm Mark Holt at gt at Welcome to our new listeners. We know there are more and more of you every week. I wanted to say something quickly about our bumper music, our wonderful bumper music. First of all, we're so grateful to Kendra Lowe for recording that. And second of all, it reminds me every time I hear it of the words of, of the, the hymn, as I search the Holy scriptures, which I won't uh, take time to read now, but I encourage you to read that hymn. I think the, I think our bumper music has uh close to a dozen instruments in it and all, all recorded by Kendra Lowe. So we, we thank her again. And, um, What a wonderful piece of music that is. And today we're talking about King Saul and David before he became king. Uh, As I've said before, and as I referenced uh, in, I think, a couple of lessons ago, there are English departments who have classes based on the Bible as great literature. And certainly the story of Saul and David qualifies along those lines. There's tragedy enough here for any Shakespearean play or even a Greek play, which is, which is much worse if you have ever read any of those because they both start out showing such promise. So we'll start by discussing Saul. Now, if you remember from last time, after Samuel's victory over the, the Philistines, after Samuel, the final, reign, the final judge of Israel, had shown that uh, he could, he could represent the Lord and lead Israel to military victory. Israel was afraid of trusting a prophet with this duty, and therefore they instructed Samuel to choose them a king. And we talked about the the prophecy that was that's found in Judges chapter nine of the brambles, and you'll want to remember that prophecy throughout the rest of our time here in the Old Testament because it's fulfilled again and again. But Samuel offers his own prophecy, which is that the king will take from you. And you could get everything that he gives to you, you could get in another way, but you will never be able to replace what he takes from you. And he'll take your sons, he'll take your lands, he'll take your daughters, he'll take your wealth. So that is, those are the two prophecies regarding what will happen if you ask for a king. Now Gideon was was approached after in earlier in the book of Judges. I don't, I'm not sure if it's chapter eight or nine. He's approached to be king, and he said, "No, I'm not going to be your king. The Lord will be your king." So he had the right attitude about it, and that's the whole point of the of the parable of the brambles. The people who are worthy, these trees. Who are worthy will will not choose to be the king, but the bramble, the thorny bush will be will will choose to be king over the trees, but if he's ever crossed, then he'll start a fire that will burn both himself and the forest. Well, Saul starts out by being a very promising king before he's even king he he's he's on a search he's dutifully. Uh, attending to one of the wishes of his father, which is to seek his father's lost animals. And he goes to the prophet to inquire where they might have gone. And this really isn't a story about the animals. They're found before he ever even gets there. And that's what the prophet tells him. Samuel is has already been instructed that Saul is on his way. And so Samuel is attending to his ecclesiastical duties when Saul appears and the Lord reveals this is the man that is going to be the king. And Samuel takes him aside and begins to instruct him and tells him what the Lord has has planned. Saul's initial attitude is, Why would you choose me? First of all, Benjamin. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, which is the smallest of all the tribes. Secondly, my family is the smallest, the least important, or at least among the least important, of all the Benjamin. So, looking at it from the outward appearance... You would think Saul, or Saul would say, you would not expect me to be king. Samuel assures him, you are the one the Lord has chosen, and anoints him. Now the word anointed, we, we could spend just a few seconds on what the significance of that is. This literally did involve pouring oil on his head. And... It meant that he had been chosen to perform a very specific mission. Now, that mission might be judging Israel, that mission might be a prophet, but it meant that the Lord had a specific task in mortality for that person to accomplish. In the case of Saul, obviously, to be a king. And the same was true of Aaron and his sons as the initial priests, and we can presume their successors in the tabernacle. They were anointed with oil unto their callings. Now the word Saul, the name Saul means asked. and Or we might say in, uh, in the parlance of those who are familiar with the Doctrine and Covenants, we might say it means called. So Saul represents someone who is called unto the Lord's service. He's even anointed. Now later on, the anointed one a lot in a lot of languages and Hebrew is one of them when you when you use an adjective sometimes the the word one or a person who has been um, given the attribute that you're talking about is understood so in Spanish for example when you say the old you actually are saying the old person if or the old one uh, depending on the context and so Saul, actually, his name means asked, but it also means called, or the one who was called. It's interesting. And he was anointed. And the word anointed also means the anointed one. Well, the word for anointed in Hebrew is Mashiach, which we have anglicized as Messiah, as you know, the Greek version of which is Christ or Christos. So Saul has a any any person that you see in the scriptures who has an anointing is being compared to Christ. There's an understood comparison. How does he fulfill his calling compared to how Christ fulfilled his? And will and Saul fails that test as as anyone does. But uh, it's the the contrast is always beneficial to our understanding of Christ. Saul starts out so humble and in fact uh, when the first time he gets prideful Samuel tells him this is this is the promise that you showed and the words he used when thou wast little in thine own sight in other words when you used to be humble god was able to do so much with you so Saul is humble and he even before he's even made king before he's even crowned there are a group of what are called prophets people who are giving prophecies that the Israelites can hear and understand and benefit from, and Saul and so these people are sort of set apart, and everyone gathers around to listen to them, but nobody jumps up and joins them. It's almost like jumping on stage during a concert. Why would you do that? You're you're there to listen, but Saul does just that. He joins these prophets that are staying in a home, a house on the way, on his way home from being called as king. And he joins right in with prophesying with them. So this tells us that not only was he humble, but his heart was in the right place and the Spirit was with him when he was called. So he truly was called. He was asked, as his name implies. Well, soon after becoming king, actually he has a he has an early military victory and, it, and his promise continues. Um, and this is This is where he says, to the Lord goes all the credit, just as Jesus did. To the Lord goes all the credit for this victory. And after his victory, after a military victory, his power is much greater. And then comes the point at which he could have said to those who followed him, he could have said, now let's find those people who opposed me becoming king. And there were many, because Samuel, although everyone knew Samuel was a prophet, not everyone took every word he said and just followed it to the letter. And so there, there was some resistance that Saul had to overcome in order to become king. And Saul's first act, once he came into his power, once he had his first victory, was to forgive those people rather than to hunt them down. So this, this humility and this greatness of soul is the hallmark of Saul's early life before he became king and th- and this observation has been made for for hundreds of years but it, in recent history or I should say in in modern history semi-modern history has been verbalized that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely the more powerful paul saul pardon me more powerful Saul gets the more corrupt he becomes so his second victory is a little different the Philistines are threatening it's almost an existential threat they're surrounding Israel and nobody it says in the uh, it says in chapter 13 that uh, of first Samuel that Saul that Paul I, I, I have to apologize because uh, in the New Testament Paul becomes Saul or Saul becomes Paul. So I, and because I'm saying Philistines and power and I'm mixing those two. Anytime you hear me say Paul, I mean Saul. Okay, enough about that. Saul is the only person, he and his son Jonathan, they're the only people who have weapons because the Philistines have been dominating the Israelites for so long. They've taken all the weapons and they didn't leave any smiths. Nobody could make weapons. And so they had to take their their tools, their there were axes that they used for cutting trees, but there were farm implements and woodcutting instruments, and that was it. Those were the weapons of war that they had, except for just a few. And, and Saul had a weapon, and his son Jonathan had a sword. But other than that, nobody did. They're worried about being utterly destroyed. And Saul, Saul asks Samuel, please come and make a sacrifice unto Jehovah so that we can be victorious in battle. And there are seven days appointed to make the sacrifices that, that Samuel is supposed to arrive and Saul waits, and the armies wait, and he's and everyone has fled. The bulk of the people that Saul would want to join his army has fled. So he has a very real fear, and the fear is that not only they they can't they don't have the weapons to counter this threat from the Philistines, but they also might lose the army, might bleed away. Everyone is going to desert before it, the time even comes to join the battle and they're waiting for the sacrifice. So there's very real pressure. And eventually, Saul bows to the pressure. He doesn't have, he had the humility, he had the spirituality, and he had the military might, the physical strength. But what he didn't have was the courage to withstand the rebukes of others, the pressure of others, peer pressure, really. Everyone's saying, we're gonna die And Saul knows very well what the commandment of the Lord is, but he goes against it because of the pressures around him. And he offers the sacrifice himself, even though he has no priesthood authority to do so. Well, as soon as, and it's it's so interesting because the scriptures report, and this is in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 13, the scriptures report that As soon as he's done with the sacrifice, Samuel arrives. And I thought that was interesting because C.S. Lewis once wondered, how do you know how strong a temptation is unless you resist it? Jesus Christ is the only one who really knows the power of Satan because he's the only one who resisted him perfectly. And so often we, being cowardly, you might say, give in to temptation as soon as it shows up. But Saul had almost withstood the entire temptation. If he just held on a little bit longer, then he would have completely resisted it. Samuel would have arrived and would have been able to offer the sacrifice. That's, a, that's an important encouragement we can give ourselves sometimes, which is, I might have... I'm struggling with a temptation right now. I might have almost resisted all of it. I might be almost done. If I can hold on a little longer, or if I can make one more decision, reach out for just a little bit more help, then I might be almost past it. That certainly is true of what Saul went through because Samuel shows up right afterwards. And this is a really big deal. Samuel says right away, he says you because uh, that you have done this thing he says first of all he says what did you do and it's interesting that Saul begins right away with his excuses he doesn't say oh samuel says did you did you obey the commandments and Saul doesn't say oh yeah i did he says well you were late and I, we were in trouble, we were worried about this. He gives all the excuses, and then he says, and so I offered the sacrifice myself. This is another test we can use. So the first one was, think about maybe we're we're almost done with this temptation. And the second one is, if we feel like giving excuses before we give an answer to what we've done, yes or no, then it's it might be true that we... Are in the wrong, that we've already, we, we are well aware of the fact that we have disobeyed the commandments of God. So that is certainly the case here with Saul. And he, he tries to dress up the fact that he's disobeyed the commandments. And Samuel says, Because you've disobeyed this, you're going to be removed from your place. You've lost your play, place as king. And he even says, that God is going to find someone after his own heart. And that person, as we know, is David. What does that mean after God's own heart? Well, what what did Saul do to prompt that saying? He succumbed to the voices of those around him. And this was the sin of all of Israel. It is closely related to the sin of idolatry. And it's the very reason for which Israel was commanded. You've got to conquer all these nations around you. You've got to destroy them, destroy them and drive them out. Because if you don't, if you become friends with them, your sons marry their daughters, your daughters marry their sons, eventually they'll influence you to where you worship their gods. It will happen. Because you do not have the strength to resist these influences. So the, the sin of idolatry and the sin of wanting for the approval and the glory of the world are very closely related. And Saul has shown that he's an idolatrous man. And in fact, that's proven many times throughout his life later. Saul rules for decades, although this, his fall from grace happens within the first couple of years. So when Samuel says I'm, the Lord is going to choose him someone of his own heart, after his own heart, what he means is someone who's not an idolatrous man. And we know what David's sins are, but his sins were not idolatry. And that is what Samuel means by this st- statement. He doesn't mean that David is perfect and that his heart is the the heart of a man who's never going to make a mistake. What he means is that he's not, he, unlike Saul, he's not an idolatrous man, and he's and he is capable of resisting the influences of those around him. And even when it's unpopular, he's going to follow the commandments of God. At least as it relates to his duties as king. And for that reason, in spite of his fall, in spite of his sins, David is still honored as the greatest king of Israel. Because he was the least idolatrous. He never influenced anyone to worship any god other than Jehovah. And that's what Samuel means by someone after his own heart well not long after they oh so this battle against the philistines Saul has offered already offered the sacrifices they go to battle but David or I'm sorry Jonathan the son of Saul the night before the battle sneaks over and manages to get an advantage on the philistines that brings victory to Saul in other words David saves his father's kingdom his father's victory and we'll talk more about this event next week because there are a lot of parallels between Jonathan and David. Um, I'm sorry, Jonathan saves his father's victory. There are a lot of parallels between Jonathan and David, and this is one of them. Uh, Jonathan crossing over into the and sneaking into the Philistines' camp is very similar to David slaying Goliath. Then again, very soon not not long after this victory over the philistines then the israelites are faced with another enemy and this is their old nemesis in fact it's the it's the most nefarious the most notorious of the israelites enemies the amalekites and you may remember that when the israelites were coming up out of egypt they were totally vulnerable they're basically just a camp full of nomads. They they have nothing resembling an armed encampment. It's just people walking through the wilderness. And that's when the Amalekites fell upon them and killed a great many of them and tried to kill them all. And for that reason, eventually the Israelites prevailed on the Amalekites, but the commandment was that they should be utterly destroyed. And uh, I remember... In my time in Israel, my, our, our Jewish civilization teacher, uh, he actually shared this with us, that of the 613 commandments that are found in the Torah, the one, that, the one to kill Amalekites is the only one that modern Israelites, modern Jews have no idea how to keep. And so what they do is they one night a year, they get drunk, They drink until, and I don't know whether this is true of all Jews or even all Orthodox Jews, but he shared this with us, so take it for what it's worth. But they drink to the point where they look in the mirror until they can no longer distinguish their own face from that of an Amalekite, and then they swear their willingness to kill the Amalekites, and hopefully then they go to sleep. But um, that was I thought that was an interesting story. So even today, the Jews feel this, this duty to slay the Amalekites because it was such a powerful commandment. Thou shalt utterly destroy them and wipe off all memory of them from the face of the earth. Well, this this is when that particular commandment came to fruition, which was Saul, go into the cities of the Amalekites and kill not only the people, but all of the animals as well. And this is in uh, the, the episode that happens here is in 1 Samuel chapter 15. So Saul does that. He has a military victory. But the commandment is to leave nothing alive. And he, first of all, he takes the king captive. And second of all, he keeps all of the choice animals, the best animals, and he brings them home. So Samuel comes to meet, after the victory, Samuel comes to meet Saul. And he says, what have you done? And this time and it's interesting to me that we can trace Saul's spiritual decline because this time he doesn't even offer excuses first so he's it's not only that he is has excused his disobedience in his own mind but he doesn't even recognize it as disobedience and this is when Samuel uses very strong language against Saul so in verse we're in 1st Sam, Samuel chapter 15 in verses 13 and verse 20 Thirteen and twenty, he sa- he even says, "I have kept the commandment of God. Look, I've done everything that God has commanded." So the first time he says that, Samus says, "Well, what then is this? Why why am I hearing the bleeding of animals? Uh, who what what animals are those?" And he's like, "Oh well, people, everyone around me wanted to keep the animals alive, but but look," and he says it again, "Look, I I kept I I did everything I was commanded to do." And so in verse 20, uh, he says, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone the way which the Lord sent me, have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But, in verse 21, But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, but they took it to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. So, now comes the excuse. Oh, they did it. The people did it. And... Or it's, it's not even a full excuse yet, because it's not Saul's fault, according to him. He didn't do it. He destroyed them. He obeyed the commandment. But then Samuel gives him his rebuke. And this is in verse 22. It's a very, very well-known scripture. Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. And finally, now Saul gives his excuse. He says, I have sinned. Oh, no. And um, oh, and then in verse 23, Samuel says, Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath rejected thee from being king. Now, when the, when the consequences start to come home to Saul, now is when he finally realizes that he sinned. And now, instead of saying he did everything that he should have done, he says, Oh, well, here's my excuse. I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. So there must have been some benefit to the people. He's claiming that he's going to sacrifice all of these animals. But why would the people want the animals just to sacrifice them? I suspect they wanted to sacrifice some of them and they wanted to capture the wealth. And again, why would they keep the king alive? Well, If the king is like other kings in that area, if he's taken captive, he can be ransomed for great sums of money. He probably had some cousins, even though his nation was wiped out. He probably had some wealthy noble cousins or royal cousins in other nations nearby. And therefore, they could ransom him. And the people wanted the wealth from that ransom. This is my guess. So the people spoke in Saul's ear. And rather than being strong and saying, I'm willing to... Risk that everyone's going to be upset with me as long as God is happy with me. He Rather than do that, Saul was weak, and he disobeyed the commandment. And because of that, um, now he says, okay, 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 listen, I've sinned. But listen, uh, let me slide this one time. Therefore, and this is verse 25, I pray thee, pardon my sin, turn again with me, that I may worship the Lord. But it's too late. Samuel says to Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. Now this is an interesting episode. What happens next? Sam, as Samuel turned about to go away, he laid hold. He laid hold. I'm, I'm assuming this means Saul. He laid ho- hold upon the skirt of his mantle, and it rent. So Saul, and this is a, this is violence. Saul grabs him so strongly, and Samuel's pulling so strongly away that he tears his clothes. And Samuel said unto him, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. And he teaches us something about God that we should already know. In verse 29, also the strength of Israel, by which he means Jehovah, the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. This should help us understand uh, some of the verses in the Old Testament that are a little harder to get. Um, in fact, if you skip to the very last verse of chapter 15, uh, it says the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. But earlier in that very chapter, it says, uh, he is not a man that he should repent. So the, the way those words, even, even without resorting to the explanation that this may have been mistranslated, the way those words are used, obviously the word translated as repent has two senses to it. And one is the Lord sorrowed, and one is that he actually thought that he made a mistake. Well, the Lord is not a man that he would ever think he made a mistake. But he may sorrow that something happened. And that, it seems pretty obvious from the context. Even without, and the Joseph Smith translation corrects most most of the instances of this kind of language. But even without recourse to that, we can we can deduce that that's what this word means. And later on, in fact, uh, an evil spirit, as it says, from the Lord, comes over Saul. Well, the Joseph Smith translation says the evil spirit, which was not from the Lord, or which was not from God. But regardless of whether Joseph Smith had opportunity to to retranslate that, we can also see an evil spirit comes over Saul. And it is a result of the the schism, the division, the gap that now exists between him and God, and the fact that God has rejected him. So the evil spirit as a result of his broken relationship with God. So whenever you read that, don't think God sends evil spirits to people. And don't don't let your faith be shaken when you see something that seems to suggest that God is not perfect. If you know the attributes of God, you know that God doesn't ever want anyone to do evil. And Satan doesn't ever want anyone to do good. That is their nature. They don't change their nature. And and God didn't want Saul to do evil. He didn't send an evil spirit so that Saul could be more perfectly judged. Sometimes God allows people, rather than intervening, God allows people to continue in their iniquity. And in fact, most of the time he does that. But sometimes he intervenes and protects the righteous and the innocent sometimes he doesn't he has his own reasons for that but he never tries to influence anyone to do evil let's talk a little bit about Saul renting Samuel rending Samuel's garment he tears his cloak and i want you to cross reference if you if you have a moment if you're if you're listening to this near your scriptures read alma 46 verses 23 and 24 this is where Moroni starts to see that Amalickiah is starting to stir up the hearts of the people to anger. And, he's, and he realizes that if unless we fight, we are going to lose our freedoms. And so he tears his clothes and writes the standard of liberty on his cloak and puts it on a pole, carries it around. And everyone comes together and they tear their own clothes and throw them at Moroni's feet and they make a covenant. And it just reminded me of these two covenants, and they actually say at that time, our clothes are a likeness of the clothes or of the cloak of our father Joseph. We're all of the tribe of Joseph, and just as Joseph has been rent from his brother, and we have been separated, and as a as a remnant, just as a remnant of his cloak was preserved, that Jacob later noted, and we have that in the scriptures. So a remnant of us will be preserved, and let God tear from us our freedoms if, we, if we're not faithful to the standard of liberty, which is we're going to fight for what we believe in. So rending their clothes was actually a covenant, and it's very similar to an ordinance of the priesthood. We're ba- when we're baptized, we're baptized using a symbol of Christ's death. We're, we're lowered into the water in the symbol of his death, and then we're brought forth in the symbol of his resurrection. And that is how most of the ordinances of the priesthood are done. They're done with symbols. They're done with a likeness. And this covenant of the Nephites was a, was just such a likeness, even though it may not have been done with the priesthood. It was a covenant. And I thought that those two things were very similar to what happens here with Samuel and Saul. Saul rends his cloak, and rather than defend himself, Samuel allows it to happen. then he turns around and says, um, in verse 28, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. So he just turns around, looks at his rent clothes, and says, Just as you've done with my clothes, so God is going to do with you in the kingdom. Interestingly, here's another thing that is worth thinking about. The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day. Now Saul would go on for decades more to be king over Israel. But Samuel says, "The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day." Now, Samuel discusses God as someone who can never break his word. In this very passage, Samuel says, "God has already spoken it. You can't have the kingdom back because God has made a promise, and what he's promised, it's already fulfilled." In other words, once once God has said it, it's on its way. This to me gives me great hope. In, the, in receiving answers to my prayers. Because it may be that if there were a prophet talking to me about what, something that I just prayed for, he might say, God has given it to thee this day. Even though it might be a while before it shows up, once God decrees it, that blessing will come. It's unavoidable. God has said it will come, and therefore, I could no more hold it back than I could stretch out my arms and keep the ocean from coming to the shore. The the promises of God will all be fulfilled. And God doesn't see time the same way we do. So when he says, the Lord hath rent the kingdom from thee this day, what he means is the Lord hath promised it this day. It is now unalterable that it's going to happen. Well, if that were a blessing, the Lord hath blessed thee with this 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 day, then we could start being grateful for it right away. So it might help if you if you've been praying for something and you believe God is going to send it. It might help to be grateful for it even before it arrives. That was just a thought that I had as I saw the fact that Samuel used the past tense to refer to something that had not yet happened. Well, Saul is now. Uh, well, Samuel goes away, and Saul is now on his way spiritually from out from being king. And Samuel originally mourned when Israel said we want a king Samuel mourned that. But now Samuel mourns the loss of Saul, the loss of Saul's spirituality. So Saul starts to pray and he never sees Samuel never sees Saul again. Sorry, Samuel starts to pray. Hopefully now we're we're through with the name confusion because the two names we're talking about don't start with the same letter. Samuel starts to pray and It's not too long before God reveals to him that David, or that the new king will be found in Bethlehem, and is the son of Jesse, and so he's led to. He's beginning to be led to David. The word David, the name David, means beloved. It's interesting to know what these names mean. They all, they almost all have real meanings in Hebrew. So when people talk to them, not only do the names have meanings if you look backwards at their etymology, but they actually have meanings in the spoken language of the people. So anytime anyone said the word David, they knew they were saying beloved. And anytime anyone said Samuel, they knew they were saying heard of God or someone that God hears. So you had to be very careful what you named your children. And uh, Samuel is led to Jesse. And Jesse has eight sons. And they're all great looking powerful looking men. So and obviously with the eldest being the owner of the birthright, and the older the son is, the closer he is to the birthright, obviously Samuel thinks, okay, we're gonna we're gonna start with the eldest, and he's he seems to be at least the most kingly looking. So Samuel thinks to himself, here he is. And that's when God tells him the the title of the lesson here which is the Lord doesn't the man looketh on the outward appearance but the Lord looketh on the heart so, so so Samuel goes through the rest of the sons of Jesse and in fact doesn't choose any of them and says is somebody missing and that's when they say well there i guess there's one more he's out tending the sheep and Samuel says we're not going to sit down until everyone has come through And when David comes, that's when God reveals this is going to be the next king. Samuel anoints him. And then it is, again, decades before David will take the throne. But he anoints him in front of all of his brethren. Very interesting episode, the way that that is done. I was reminded when thinking about this scripture and thinking about the title of this lesson. I don't know how many of you listening are youth or who work with the youth, but if you do, you may have heard or read the recent youth devotional given by the prophet and his wife, uh, President and Sister Nelson. It's called Hope of Israel, and you can find it in your gospel app, your gospel library app under the youth section. Um, He spends, President Nelson spends several paragraphs talking about social media. So he one of the things he, his main point is that you're the, you youth are the hope of Israel. You're the battalion of Israel. What are you willing to give up? What are you willing to sacrifice? What are you willing to do? And so he gives them five things in the first one. My first invitation, I'm now quoting from, President Nelson, my first invitation to you today is to disengage from a constant reliance on social media by holding a seven day fast. I acknowledge there are positives about social media, but if you are paying more attention to feeds from social media than you are to the whisperings of the Spirit, then you are putting yourself at spiritual risk, as well as the risk of experiencing intense loneliness and depression. You and I both know youth who have been influenced through social media to do and say things that they never would do or say in person. Bullying is one example. Another downside of social media is that it creates a false reality. Everyone posts their most fun, adventurous, and exciting pictures, which create the erroneous impression that everyone except you is leading a fun, adventurous, and exciting life. Much of what appears in your various social media feeds is distorted, if not fake. So give yourself a seven-day break from fake. And he extends the invitation to take a seven-day fast from social media, and then and then use the spirit to decide what parts of it you want to reintroduce into your life. His description of social media, I just struck me to the heart when I read this scripture of, uh, "The Lord looketh upon the heart, not on the outward, not on the outward appearance," because it's not necessarily physical, but when we look at our lives, there's the heart of our lives, which only we know, the difficulties that we suffer, the challenges that we endure, the weaknesses that we have, and maybe some close loved ones know them as well as we do, maybe not. But then there's the outward appearance of our lives, and the Lord doesn't look on the outward appearance of our lives. Man looketh on the outward appearance, and nowhere have I ever heard it stated more clearly than hereby President Nelson, our prophet. So that's something to consider is that when we think of the Lord look at, looking upon the heart, we should consider that when we're looking at someone's life on social media, we're looking at the outward appearance. And we should take a break from fake. And uh, whenever possible, that we should, and again, when we see someone, the heart of someone's life, when we see their weaknesses, we should be forgiving. Just as we would want someone to be with ours, with our own weaknesses, with their own lives, with the heart of our lives, it's—I I think that that parallel is is irrefutable. It's just so powerful. So, the the next time we come across David is when his brothers have been drafted, as Samuel promised. Your sons will. He will take your sons away. Three, his three oldest brothers are drafted into Saul's army, and they're, again, fighting the Philistines. And this time, there's a man named Goliath. And Goliath means splendor or greatness. There's a, there's a large man named Goliath. He's nine and a half feet tall. And his armor, was, his armor alone was so heavy that it weighed 5,000 shekels of brass, which was a measurement of weight. Today in Israel, incidentally, it's their money, shekels. But uh, this is anywhere from 150 to 200 pounds of iron. And his his spearhead alone weighed 600 shekels, which is around between 20 and 25 pounds. So if you can imagine taking a spearhead and putting it at the end of a spear and having that weigh 25 pounds... So Goliath was not only huge, but he was immensely powerful. Um, every time I teach the lesson on David and Goliath, I remember years ago. This is just a this is not gospel related and all, but it's at all, but it's a personal story, and I think it's funny. Uh, I remember years ago when the Three Amigos came out and. To inspire this is a parody, it's an old western, it's a comedy western, a parody of the Magnificent Seven. And to inspire the townspeople to stand up to the the evil tyrant, the uh one of the characters says, and the and the name of the evil guy is El Guapo. And the character says, Each of us has an El Guapo to face one day. For some, shyness might be their El Guapo, for others, lack of education could be their El Guapo. In our case, El Guapo is a large, angry man who wants to kill us. But I feel confident that the people of Santa Poco can conquer their own personal El Guapo, which in this case also happens to be the actual El Guapo. And just to be funny, every time I used to teach this lesson, I would say that exact speech. I I memorized it so that I could quote it exactly. And I would switch the word El Guapo for Goliath. And then the people of Santa Poco, I would say you know, the people of the, of the church. And every so often somebody afterwards would come up and say, I know what you just did. That was from three amigos. Well, I would have done that in this podcast, except that that movie is now so old. I I first did this when I was in college. That movie is now so old that nobody gets the reference anymore. And that makes me feel really old. So I thought I'd just tell you the joke rather than Try to see who noticed it, because if nobody noticed it, then I would have f- felt even older. In case you've never seen Three Amigos, go watch it. It's really funny. But the, the object lesson of David and Goliath is obvious, which is David was much weaker than Goliath. He's a hugely powerful man. David triumphed over him because he had faith in God. But we're hopefully going to find a few lessons that aren't quite so obvious. First, I want to address one thing, which is uh, not too long ago, a few years ago, an author named Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called David and Goliath. And in that book, he pointed out that, or he he made some claims, and he said that uh, it's actually David who had the advantage because David was small and mobile and and Goliath likely suffered from a disease called acromegaly, which is gigantism and he may have had vision loss as often occurs in people with a thyroid problem that causes them to grow into adulthood well and in other words david was the obvious winner and he didn't really the the implication is he didn't really need the strength of the lord to win um there and a lot of people feel smart when they read this because they think oh i know something now that they they want to believe it because they know something now that the general population does not know. But I've heard that now, and I've heard people bring it up in church during this lesson, and I just think, um, first of all, the scientific and historical evidence is not there. That Goliath was, um, certainly he's carrying this heavy weight of armor, but that he was not mobile enough, or that he had vision problems, or that David really did have an advantage. We'll talk about what advantages David did have. Some of what Malcolm Gladwell says is true, but to assume that everything he says is true and that David really had the advantage and therefore didn't really need the Lord's help, I think is kind of dumb, actually. There's there's no evidence for it, or the evidence is not compelling. The evidence is stronger in the other direction. The fact that that Goliath is carrying around 200 pounds of armor uh, to me says that he could have stepped on David and crushed him with one foot. Um, so I, if I, I would be prepared if I were a teacher, a gospel doctrine teacher today, I'd be prepared to to address that without making someone feel stupid, but to say, well, we don't have a whole lot of evidence of that. And, you know, it's it seems clear that Goliath was a mighty man and you would not expect the mighty man to lose. So let's talk a little bit about uh, what Goliath represents. I, I don't know whether this was intentional or whether uh, in the writers of the Gospels later, or whether it just happens to be one of those coincidences. But to me, I see a parallel in the temptations of Satan and of Jesus Christ and the challenges and the temptations of Goliath. First of all, What are the three temptations of Christ? First of all, he's in the wilderness. He's been fasting for 40 days. And for 40 days, Goliath is out mocking the Israelites and saying, anyone who's strong enough, come fight me. And if you can fight me in in single combat and win, then all the Philistines will be your servants. But if I win, then you'll be our servants. And nobody nobody was stupid enough to take him up on this because he... Is nine and a half feet tall, and he has armor on that weighs two hundred pounds. Why would you take somebody up on that? Why would you risk your whole, not only your own life? That presumably there were people in, among the Israelites who were willing to risk their own lives, but why would you risk your whole army on the on the chance that you could beat that guy? You you probably not only die but enslave everyone that you know, and then all your con- country would be conquered. So nobody was taking him up on it. David, when he arrives, he's bringing food to his brothers. His father sends him with food and with, to get news. And he arrives and he says, who's this guy? Who's, who's going to defy the armies of the living God? So David has real faith. And he has such strong faith that people hear him talking and he just can't believe it. He can't believe nobody's going against Goliath. He's like, well, I see him, but big deal. Who cares if he's stronger? than than anyone else we we have god on our side so david sees that and uh it's 40 days at that point that goliath has been challenging the armies and 40 days that christ was in the wilderness and his first temptation was turn these stones into bread you're you're hungry and goliath's first temptation is if you if you don't fight me we're all going to kill you and if you and if you're willing to come out and fight me, then you can just be servants to us. But if you, if you don't accept this challenge, then we're going to fall upon you and, and you'll be dead. So save yourselves, save your physical bodies from death. And that's what Satan was tempting Christ with. Save, save your body from death by hunger. Turn these stones into bread. Well, how does David... So Christ resists that temptation by saying, no, man doesn't live by bread alone. Man lives by the word of God. David fights that temptation by saying, I'm not going to accept your challenge. This is my read on the situation because it's not exactly clear. David doesn't come out and say, Okay, okay, Goliath, I accept your challenge. If I win, you're all my servants. If you win, we're all your servants. Instead, he just goes up and kills him. So David accepts the challenge, but um, he's brought before the king. He's brought before Saul and he says look we we have god on our side david says this to saul we've got god on our side i know i can kill this guy and saul says what do you what do you mean you can kill this guy look at you i mean you're you're not you're not a total weakling but you're you're not even as big as me let alone as big as goliath and um and david has a story to tell him he says i've killed a lion and a bear and by lion Uh, He doesn't probably mean a Bengal tiger or a a big maned lion. He probably means a mountain lion, a fairly big one. I've actually, when I was on a hike in Jordan uh, a couple of years ago, I actually turned around. I was with some friends and I saw a mountain lion on the trail and I called their attention to it. And before they could turn around, he was gone. So nobody believed me. But this mountain lion was big enough that uh, he could have, he could take away a a small a lamb or a kid or even a goat, a full grown goat uh if nobody fought against him and carry it away and The idea that a person could fight that mountain lion and win i would be very frightening. It seemed like the mountain lion has claws and teeth and just strong every day out there, running around hunting, fighting for his life uh A person fighting, one man alone fighting against a mountain lion would be very scary. But that, that I would guess, is the kind of mountain lion. And I actually have no idea what kind of bears used to live in that area, but there are no bears in modern Israel. But any bear, even a small bear, is more than a match for any person if if the bear is angry and if the bear is fighting for its food or for its life. And David goes in front of Saul and says, I've fought both a lion and a bear. And I smote, I grabbed him by the beard. In other words, it was not just uh, me throwing a spear at a lion, which is how you would want to kill a lion. It was me locked in combat with this wild animal. And in the strength of the Lord, I killed not only one, but two of these animals, these wild animals, these vicious predators. And he, he wasn't saying this to get glory. He was saying this because he's saying, I, in, I know I can do this in the strength of the Lord. I've been given this strength in the past, and I've killed things that are greater than myself. I know what it's like to fight for my life, and I'm not afraid. Now, this is really, for me, we'll, we'll come back to this because it is the point of the lesson. But Saul is so moved by this that he gives David the permission He gives him his armor and gives him permission to go against Goliath. But the scripture says that the armor was unproved. And we don't know whether that means that David felt unworthy of it because he hasn't earned it in battle or whether he felt like it's too cumbersome. He can't move. He doesn't have the freedom to move. He knew what he had in mind because he'd already picked up five smooth stones from the stream. He knew he was going to use a sling and he didn't want something to weigh his arm down. So that might have been why, or it might have been that he didn't feel like he'd earned the armor, but in any case, he takes he puts on the armor of King Saul and then he takes it back off. And he goes out with just a staff in his hand and a sling and these stones in his bag to to face Goliath. And Goliath sees him coming and mocks him. But that when Christ says man does not live by bread alone and therefore resists the temptation of Satan, uh, David goes out and fights Goliath without accepting his challenge and saying, yes, we're going we're gonna to be your servants, you're going to be our servants. I formally accept your challenge. He just attacks. And that means that if he wins, he probably doesn't get the servants. And in other words, I'm not going to fight you on your terms. I'm not going to accept this deal that you're offering me. To me, there's a there's a parallel there, which is Goliath was offering the Israelites to save their physical lives by accepting the bondage of Satan, and David refused that. It was all or nothing in the fight against sin, in the fight against Goliath, in the fight against the Philistines. Second temptation of Satan is Satan carries Christ to the pinnacle of the temple, as it's called, and says, cast yourself from this and then have your angels swoop up. And presumably the temptation was, then everyone will see that you're the Messiah. They will see that angels have saved you. And it's it's a visible place. There are a lot of, all the people that you're going to want to convert, they're all right here, and they would see it happen. So you're going to have glory. You're going to be respected of men. And once again, Goliath has given this, this challenge very visibly. And David, rather than standing forth and rather than going around the armies of the Israelites first and saying, I'm going to kill Goliath, and then walking back and forth as Goliath did in front of the Philistines and challenging them, he doesn't say anything. He just runs, and, or he says very little, and just runs straight at Goliath and attacks. So he's not doing this for glory. And as he says to King Saul, I'm not doing this for my own glory, but we are the armies. That God is on our side. We are the people of God. Do we not have faith? Thirdly, Satan carries Christ to a mountain far away and says, if you will worship me, shows him a vision, envision all of the kingdoms of the earth and says, if you will worship me, I will give you dominion over all these. And Christ resists this by saying, uh, it is written, worship God, and him only shalt thou worship him, and him only shalt thou serve. And so the, the temptation in this case is power and glory. And the name of Goliath means power and glory. It means splendor and greatness. So he represents Goliath as is the, is the embodiment, the very incarnation of the arm of flesh. But David, and, and this is a pattern that was established earlier, gen- generations earlier with Gideon. David is weak. And Gideon, was he had strength of numbers, but God said, no, I want you to be weak because I want people, when you win, I want people to know that I was on your side and I'm the one who did the fighting. But here, But I want you to prepare yourselves. And that is exactly what happened with David. He's weak, but he's prepared. And that brings us back to the story of the lion and the bear. When David fought this lion and this bear, in that case, there was nobody to watch. There was just his duty. He could have let the lion and the bear take away whatever animal, whatever part of his flock, whatever part of his stewardship. And he could have said, I can't fight that. It would have been very reasonable to say, I can't fight that animal. But then what would have happened the next time that, animal, that predator needed a meal? He would have come back and it would have killed the entire flock one by one. Every time he got hungry, it would have been another member of the flock down. And so the first time, David said, I'm going to go rescue that that lamb. And he hunted down, he chased down these predators and fought them and prevailed. We don't know exactly how, but I would be fascinated to know because that's quite a feat of bravery. So when he did that, he was on his own. There was no glory. There was just duty and danger. And David showed courage And he showed great faith. And those were the experiences that gave him the confidence to stand up to Goliath. That was also, his confidence was what gave Saul the faith he needed to say, all right, well, I'm risking a lot by sending you out there. Because if you lose, we've got a lot on on the line here. And I'm going to give you my arm. I'm going to give you every advantage I can, including my armor and my guards, if you want them to face Goliath, but I'm willing to put my faith in you because you have faith in yourself. You've fought a lion and a bear. So, every other time until now, when I've taught this lesson, I've always taught what are the Goliaths in our lives. The truth is, we never know when those Goliaths are coming but we often are facing a lion and a bear, something that we're just alone. We're not doing it in front of anyone, and it's difficult, and it might be dangerous, either spiritually or you know, maybe we have a great deal at risk. by fa- We risk failure. And it's just our job to get it done. And if we don't do it now, then it's going to get worse and worse until we do. Every one of us has something like that in our lives. You know, we may face a Goliath one day. We may not, where there's a chance to really make it big in front of everyone. If we do, hopefully we have the faith. But the way we prepare ourselves for that day that may come is by facing our lions and our bears now. To me, that seems like the real point of this lesson is not when you face Goliath, go out in the strength of the Lord. But when you have a duty, a job to perform, when you have a lion and a bear, that's when you need to build faith in the Lord. So let's prepare. Let's believe that God can help us fight and fight these and prevail over these lions and these bears in their lives. And one example might be a church calling that we don't feel equal to, that feels like, we're going to fail at or that if we are, or a talk in church or perhaps we're working with the youth and if we don't do it right then they're going to not be prepared for the the things that they'll face in their lives or maybe we have a family member who's struggling there are a lot of things that we could risk spiritually and We have to have the courage. We have to be prepared. We have to be praying. We have to be listening to the Spirit. We have to invite personal revelation to face those risks. Because if we don't, then we lose one sheep at a time until all the sheep are gone. It's not like the predator's are going to stop. Eventually, they'll come back because it was easy prey. Because Satan knows we don't have the courage and the faith to listen to God's voice. So, the lesson I take from this from this particular passage of scripture, the story of David and Goliath, is that we need to be strengthening ourselves with the faith of God while it's still lions and bears, that we can have courage to face our lions and our bears, so that one day when it is Goliath, we'll be able to have confidence in ourselves. David didn't didn't hesitate. It wasn't difficult for him to face Goliath. He ran right at him. He put his he put a stone in his sling, and that was an advantage because he was at a range. He was he was out of range of Goliath's sword. But the fact that Goliath had heavy armor on didn't help David hit him right in the center of the forehead with a stone. David had to be prepared with skill and with faith and with strength and with confidence so that Goliath tumbled to the earth and David went over and took his own sword out and cut off his head and he didn't do it according to D- Goliath's terms he didn't he didn't stand up next to him and get in range of his arms and let him grab him and or get in range of his sword and let him cut right through his staff and and cut him right in half which he obviously would have been able to do instead he stayed well out of range and he used the weapon that he knew would keep him the safest and he ran right at Goliath and didn't hesitate So many interesting lessons in there for us. I pray that we can fight our lions and bears, identify them, ask God for help with them, so that when the day comes to fight Goliath, we won't hesitate. We won't have any doubt that God is with us. One final note. David said that this is the army. When he arrived and saw Goliath, he said, who is this man to defy the armies?" of the Lord our God but that army was not the army of the Lord until David arrived until that point everyone was afraid as soon as David arrived it took one person not to be afraid and that all of a sudden that army became the army of Jehovah one person can make a difference and who knows but that you will face a situation in your life where You need to arrive somewhere and turn everyone around you into the army of Jehovah. It's possible that you will one day come upon a situation where everyone is waiting for someone to come who will turn them into the army of Jehovah, and it might be you. A lot of times we think that the little choices in our lives don't matter, but your choices are preparing you to either be ready for that day or to not. And then if you're not, then you'll have to wait with everyone else until someone else arrives to turn you into the army of Jehovah. So if we've ever been in that situation and failed, let us repent. And if we, and if we have that situation in our future, let us prepare. Preparation is what David had to resist the final temptation. Goliath, the embodiment of the arm of flesh. Christ said, serve God and him only shalt thou serve. And David prepared himself by fighting the lion and the bear and having faith in God and turning the people around him into the army of Jehovah. May we turn our friends, our family, and ourselves into the army of Jehovah. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.